Philippians chapter 3, verse number 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. How many of you know this chapter? I'm just curious. How many of you have a kind of a decent working understanding of this? Good. I was hoping I was hoping it was like two hands go up. That's good because that means I can preach this with zeal and preach it with accuracy because this is important. I'm going to tell you about a guy named Dan. When I came to Meadow Baptist Church in 1994, Dan and his wife, Carol, came about nine months later. And Dan, I was 25. Dan would have been about 48, 49 at that time. And Dan was immediately uh, welcomed by the church, and it was, became known to the church that he was a pillar at his former church, which had closed down. And so when he came, I was, quite frankly, impressed with him. He was calm. He was nice. He was polite. He was a fount of Bible knowledge. He, he walked with dignity. He was a, a businessman, but he was nice to everybody, no arrogance on him, nothing like that. But he just looked like what I thought a, a Christian should be. And soon, soon enough, about a year after he and his wife came, they, they invited Dan to become a deacon of the church, and he ended up being a Sunday school teacher. And then when I became the pastor, about five years, six years after that, uh, my pastor retired, and I became the pastor. And I was so encouraged to work with Dan because Dan was what a Christian should be. And I talked to him, and I found out, man, I mean, he had a, he had a stellar code of conduct integrity in business was important to him. He was a very moral man. He, I remember him telling me he had never touched alcohol because he didn't ever want to give his senses to alcohol. So I was looking, of course, my background was filled with alcohol and drugs and all that stuff. So I thought, this is a guy who's done it right from the beginning. And he was just a pillar of the church. Well, flash forward to about 2000 and I think it was about 2010. And we're up here in this building now. We had moved from Duluth. We came up here. And on a Sunday morning, I don't even know what I was preaching. I have no idea what I was preaching. But I, I remember looking out there and there's Dan and he's, he's just kind of shaking. And, and then I see him over at the altar 
and he's praying and he's he's crying and I'm saying wow he is getting rocked the holy man is getting rocked over there. this is awesome and and at the end of the service we sent everybody home and Dan came and got me and he was shaking and by this time he's in his late 60s I think or probably yeah probably mid 60s and and he's, he's like pastor I got to talk to you and I said okay he said I've just been saved What now? No, I, I've just been saved. When can I get baptized? And I'm thinking to myself, you can't get saved. You're the moral dude. You're the deacon. You're the Sunday school teacher. You're the Bible fountain. You're the nicest man in the church. What do you need to be saved from? And when he stood up on the platform, we used to have a baptistry on the wall behind me, and he got down in there. He testified how all of these years he had just worked on being a good man, a moral man, a religious man. And all of those years, he had never once repented of his sin and confessed his deep need for a savior. Dan had an amazing resume, but on that day, he threw it out. He tossed it out. This is what Paul wants to talk about. It is my belief, and it's also been my experience, it is far easier to reach with the gospel the immoral, broken, sin-anchored individual whose life is a mess than it is to reach the dans of this world. And the reason why is very clear. When you're only moral, when you're only righteous, when you only behave well, when you have Bible knowledge, when you've got impeccable morality and good church attendance, you don't feel like you need a savior. But when you're broken and your life is shattered and you're in bondage to something, you know you need a rescue. Well, 2,000 years before there was a Dan, there was a, a man named Saul of Tarsus. We know him better as the Apostle Paul because we know him after his conversion. And so let's look at what Paul says about what happened in his life. First of all, he's writing this letter to a very small group of Christians in an area called Philippi, and he calls them to a huddle. Paul gives a little huddle up moment because he's about to tell them that there's danger coming their way to their little bitty gathering there in uh, the Philippian territory. He, he says in verse number one, he gives them this call that is worthy to be repeated. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. That's a little bit of a weird sentence there, and I had to actually get some help with this, and I finally kind of got the extracted the gist out of it. A lot of scholars wonder, well, we don't know exactly what he's talking about specifically when he says to write the same things to you is of no trouble to me. Let me tell you what I think it is. I think it's a combination of his repeated references to rejoicing. The book of Philippians has four chapters, and no fewer than seven times does Paul call them to some level of joy or rejoicing. In the midst of, of life, in the midst of struggles, in the midst of being Christians in an area where Christianity wasn't valued, Paul would say to them, don't lose your joy. Don't lose your joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and then so on and so on. So it's listed second in the fruit that comes from those that are walking in the Spirit. And so he's telling them, I'm going to tell you again, rejoice in the Lord. You remember what Nehemiah's book said, Nehemiah chapter number 8, verse number 10. The joy of the Lord is our strength. 
that literally there is something that happens when we prioritize the joy of Jesus in our lives that actually builds strength. Paul says here, to write this to you again is not a trouble to me. He's like every other preacher. We don't mind saying the same thing over and over and over again. If you come here often, you will say, Jeff says that every other Sunday. And the reason why is some of these truths just have to be reinforced and reinforced. But this is what Paul starts alluding to. I think he's also talking about things that he had told them before. And he's now saying, I'm going to tell you again. It doesn't bother me that I'm going to say it again. And as a matter of fact, what I'm about to say is going to safeguard you. That's what he says when he says it's safe for you. See, Paul is telling them to rejoice, but as soon as he says that, he also is about to give them a warning. It's interesting to me that when Paul gives the first warning in, uh, in this letter to the church at Philippi, he's not warning them about the pagans. He's not warning them about the cult prostitutes that are all, all throughout the Roman Empire. He's not warning them here about getting drunk or being immoral or, or, or cheating. He's about to give the strongest warning in the entire book. And do you know who he's warning them about? He's warning them about people that want to infiltrate the church with a religious spirit. We call them more often than not legalists. Have you heard that term before? Raise your hand if you've heard that term before. Okay, so let's go into what, what that says because I'm going to tell you. I got delivered from legalism. I got saved, was placed in a very, very conservative, loving church, but there was, throughout that camp, there was a lot of legalism in it, and without even knowing it, because it was the first thing that got me after I got saved, I went from being a wild child to getting saved to becoming a legalist of the first class. So I've actually been saved twice. I got saved from my sin and then I got saved from legalism. And so if I preach this with a little passion, just know this, it's personal, but it's not so personal that it's a, a, an ax to grind, it's still a threat. It's still a threat to our churches today. Nothing quenches the work of the Holy Spirit more so than a legalistic spirit that rises up against what the Lord is doing. So let's go into this. Go down into verse number two with me. Here's the call to be on guard. Paul gives it very clearly. He's talking about one group of people, but he uses three different references. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's a little graphic. It's a little bit of a delicate subject, but I believe we're pretty much all adults in here. And so, yes, we'll talk a little bit about circumcision because that was the mark that was the badge of honor to these religious legalists. What is Paul talking about? Let me give you some background and then we'll look at the terms. So Paul is aware at Rome that there are people that are infiltrating the church. Who are these people? These are people who believe that you must accept Jesus Christ as Lord in order to have your sins forgiven. You receive Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the Lord. That's awesome. That's good doctrine right there. There is only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody goes to the Father except through me. We, we say amen. That's great doctrine. However, they would also tell Gentile converts that the Gentile converts had to go through Jewish circumcision. 
I'm going to take it for granted, you know what circumcision is. I don't really want to go into detail there. But that was the badge of honor that all the Hebrew males, in order to show themselves separated unto God through the Abrahamic covenant, they had to, on the eighth day, seven days after their birth, the males would be circumcised. And so out of all the things, listen, it was God's idea, so we, we can't poke, poke holes in it, but it, it became um, a, a source of pride. And so when Jewish people were getting saved by receiving Yeshua as the Messiah, and then the gospel ended up going to the Gentiles who, who weren't obligated to be circumcised, these Jewish Christians, if they were Christians, started maximizing on this issue of saying, okay, you've received Jesus but now you, sir, at 35 years old, we need to circumcise you. Now you can imagine that there wasn't a long enthusiastic line to get say, yes, I wanna sell out for Jesus through this, no. And, and, and what had happened is it brought people into legalistic bondage. In other words, underlying this was this, Jesus isn't enough, Jesus plus circumcision. And it would also sometimes be the dietary laws. You had to eat only kosher food if you really wanted to be a Christian. At other times, it could be ritual cleansings or times of prayer or observing the new moons and the feasts and the Sabbaths, and they, they had to bow to the Hebrew calendar. And Paul caught wind of this, and this was always kind of hounding Paul. He actually got into a lot of, of conflict because of the spirit. Matter of fact, if you look in Acts chapter number 15, you'll find out that they had to call a massive council together to decide... Are Gentile Christians obligated to enter into any part of the Jewish law? And the answer was no, they need to abstain from fornication and they don't need to drink, uh, they don't need to eat food that is filled with blood. That was the end of the discussion. Well, here we are at a different time and these people are going around and they're saying, yeah, I'm glad you've accepted Jesus, but there needs to be some kind of outward sign on you. Now, go back to verse number two. Throw that verse back up on the screen if you don't mind. This is who he's talking about when he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, here's what Paul is doing. He is turning all of the terms that the Jewish people use about the Gentiles. He's taking them. Remember, Paul's, Paul's Jewish. He is a, he's about to tell us his Jewish pedigree. But he's saying, these people aren't real Jews. As a matter of fact, they call the Gentiles the dogs. Paul says, I'm going to tell them they're dogs. I mean, he's showing no political correctness, no deference. He's not worried about hurting anybody's feelings. It's not living in the 21st century where people get offended at the drop of a hat. Paul didn't care if he offended anybody. He's protecting the flock from error. He's keeping lies off of the gospel. And then he says, look out for the evildoers. It's the same group of people. He's saying, these Judaizers, these Jewish legalists, they're dogs because they're scavenging around and they're attacking in packs and they come with intimidation. They're like a pack of wild dogs. And he says, they promote themselves as those that go above and beyond doing good. We're doing extra things. We are the law keepers. And he says, no, because you're trying to justify yourself through good works. The good works you think you're doing are actually evil works. It's a hard place for, for, for a lot of people to embrace this, but the danger of legalism is it looks holy. It looks like those are like top tier believers. 
because their, their faith is expressed in this rigid commitment to doing this and doing this and doing this and doing this and never doing this and never doing this. And it's not enough that they want it for themselves. This is what makes it legalism. Legalism is not having high standards for yourself. I hope you do have some high standards for yourself. I hope you and the Lord cultivate them. When does it become legalism? When you take the standards between you and God and you would legislate them on other people. Now, we're not talking about Bible. When the Bible says to behave a certain way and there are some lists in the Bible that tell us what we can do and what we can't do, we're not talking about that. We're talking about somebody kind of picking and choosing what's important to them and then telling you you're not quite the Christian you think you are if you don't live like they live. And so they end up, Paul says, yeah, you're not a do-gooder, you're an evildoer. And it's not because that the things that they're doing are, are necessarily wrong. It's the motivation behind them and the fact that they're seeking to justify themselves by their behavioral modification. So in other words, they're not resting in what Jesus did for them. They're resting in what they're trying to do for Jesus. And so the cycle goes on and on. And what's happening is Paul's saying, yeah, they're actually going into places where Paul labored for the gospel, where Paul... Uh, one converts he discipled them he trained them he baptized them he did everything to get the church going he leaves it in good hands and then these power brokers come in and start sowing the bad doctrine of legalism he says that's doing evil and then on this particular issue of of the circumcision because that was the big thing they're wanting all the men all the gentile men to be circumcised so in other words if you're really going to be a christian you got to become a jew to become a christian is what they're saying and that, that, that defies the gospel. And so Paul says, if, if, if they're going around saying that, the circumcision doesn't mean anything. It's just mutilating the flesh. It's a little delicate, granted. I, I understand. I don't really need to harp on it too much. But, but the word actually, Paul says at a different place in the book of Galatians, he, he, he says, listen, if, if circumcision makes you holy, why don't you go ahead and castrate yourself? That's what he says. Aren't you glad you came tonight? Isn't this a blessing? I know, it's delicate, but, but listen, and of course, we don't really wrestle with, with the circumcision thing, but man, if, if, if we took 20 minutes and I gave each of you an opportunity to say, hey, what are some of the legalism, legalistic things that have been taught to you over the years or, or portrayed to you or a religious spirit tried to get you to do, we, we could have a ton. Uh, I remember somebody telling me if I was going to be a good Christian, I could never go to a movie. I couldn't go to a movie theater. Listen, it, it, you might cringe at this, but when I first got saved, um, the church had loving people. I, I don't doubt their love. Their love was true, and they were just kind of operating in what they had been taught over the years. But we were taught that it was sinful for a woman to wear a pair of pants, for a man to have hair that touched his collar. Literally, I remember a time where a guy who had a great voice couldn't sing in our choir because he had a ponytail. We were taught, and some of you don't get offended at me. I'm just kind of going down a little bit of the list. We, we were taught that there was only one translation that really was the Word of God. And the rest of them were not versions. They were perversions. Clever. You know, the list is just so nauseating. And, and none of it biblical. None of it. Usually... It's the misappropriation of a verse somewhere, and it's repackaged, taken out of the Jewish law, repackaged into some kind of Christian standard, and then it gives ammunition to the legalist to boom, boom, boom. They can, they can assassinate anybody that doesn't live up to their measure. And Paul said, 
You need to watch out for those people. He's not just talking to the Philippians. It's still for us today. The spirit of legalism is tolerated in Bible Belt churches far more often than the spirit of liberalism. You know, it's, those are the two ditches, liberal theology, legal theology. And I don't know why, liberal theology, I've just seen people pounce on, and, and they should if it's not biblical, but legal, legalistic theology gets a free pass. And the reason why is because it makes us feel spiritual. If we've got a whole bunch of stuff we don't do, it makes us feel really great about ourselves, especially if we can find people that do do the things that we don't do. And we can say, oh, maybe one of these days you poor souls will grow up and become like me. And that's the spirit of legalism. And listen, Paul said, you need to watch out for that. He didn't say they were annoying. He said they're like a pack of dogs. They're dangerous. And he's going to tell us why as we go a little bit further. So verse number three, he then says, and he's turning it around. Here is this, this call. He call. Remember, he's got them in a huddle, and he's now calling them to abandon any misplaced confidence. He says, he's talking to Christians who rest in grace, we are the circumcision. He's saying it's not the physical mark of circumcision that makes a, a Christian a Christian. He says, we are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, we who glory in Christ Jesus, and we who put no confidence in the flesh. Now, let's work through that because Paul is saying here, this is what a Christian is. He's saying a Christian is not one who has a surgical procedure that is delicate. It's a, a Christian is not one who outwardly associates with being uh, from the Jewish people or in the Abrahamic covenant. He says, if you want to know who the true circumcision is, if you want to know who those are that are circumcised in the heart, that's what all throughout your Old Testament, if you'll read the prophets and you read some in the law, you're going to find out God saying, I know you're circumcised in your body, gentlemen, but I'm calling Israel to be circumcised in the heart, the cutting away of the part of the heart that's no good. And, and, and Israel took pride in their, their circumcision in the body. Meanwhile, God was indicting them for having uncircumcised hearts. Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 2. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter of the law. That's Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. So he's saying here, okay, so we know it's not about the outward mark in the man's body. What is it about? He says, here's the mark of a heart that's been changed. We worship by the Spirit of God. We worship in the Holy Spirit. In other words, we are not trying to work it. We're not trying to make it happen. We're not trying to hold everything together. We're not trying to fabricate something spiritual and religious so that God will applaud us. He says, in essence, he is saying this, we are those that are led by the Spirit of God. Those that are the sons and daughters of God are led by the Spirit of God. The, 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 the cry of their heart is the Holy Spirit's cry, Abba, Father. We long to be with the Father. We want to be close to the Father. And it's worship. It's worship. It just means we acknowledge he is great and we're not. I mean, think about the audacity. The, the, the biggest problem I have with legalism, there's two, two problems. One, it's inconsistent because no two legalists can agree on what is the actual uh, list that you have to go through. 
As, as many legalists as there are, they all have a different list. So it's completely inconsistent. But the second thing is, is all legalism underestimates the holiness of God. Because legalism teaches that if I can just do a little more, I'm more acceptable to God. And, and so it's like, let me add something to the blood of Jesus, and that'll really get me there. It's an affront to a holy God. It, it invalidates worship. When we worship by the Spirit, we know that we are nothing apart from Jesus. We have nothing apart from Jesus. But in Jesus, we are accepted, we are complete, we are beloved, and we are the children of God. So we're freed up not to bring our works before the Lord so he'll be appeased, but we're freed up to say our works, what is it, Isaiah 64, our works are filthy rags. So why bring the filthy rags? Let's just worship in spirit. Paul says that's the mark of somebody who is spiritually circumcised. He says, we glory in Christ Jesus. The word means to boast. It, it means this. We ain't walking around strutting about how spiritual we are. If we're going to glory, if we're going to boast, it's not going to be in what we're doing, how spiritual we are, my how far we've come. We glory, we boast in Jesus. The deeper you walk with the Lord, the less you're going to feel the need to strut your stuff in the kingdom. Lord, deliver us from strutting. There's no strutting in heaven. There's no chest bumping or chest thumping in heaven. There's really no high fives up there. There might be celebration, but we're not, you know, oh, God help me, I almost got off on a, a tangent there. But we, we've all seen the athletes and what they do when they either just have a ridiculously awesome dunk, I'm a sports fan, or the dude catches an 80-yard touchdown. We see their faces, we see their posturing, we, we see all of it. There's none of that in heaven. Nobody's going to go up there and say, did you see what I did on earth? Did, did you, do you remember what I did in 2019? Did you catch that? No, you didn't catch it? Lord, will you replay that? It was in uh, March of 2019. Will you show them that? It's just not going to happen. Why? Because we glory in Christ Jesus. Just brag on Jesus. Listen, let another boast of you. You don't ever have to boast to yourself. You don't have to get credit. You don't have to be acknowledged. I know that's a desire. We all want to be affirmed. I get that. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but what I'm saying is don't make it happen for yourself. Spend your time exalting Jesus. You humble yourself. He'll exalt you at the due time. And so he's saying those that are truly circumcised in heart, they worship God by the Spirit. They glory in Christ Jesus. They put no confidence in the flesh. That's, that's actually an expectation on the Christian. Don't, don't put your confidence in what you do for the Lord. Um, be grateful that he uses you. Be grateful that you've got gifts. Be grateful that you're able to release into the kingdom. But don't put confidence in what you can do for the Lord. I'd love to just segue Amy to get up here because after her wreck in 2011, she, she, she went from serving the Lord constantly every week to not being able to serve the Lord for month after month after month after month after month. Couldn't even come to church because she was in the wheelchair, then in the hospital bed, and then through rehab on the leg and all of that stuff. And so if her confidence had been in all this stuff that she was doing for God, it was yanked away from her. But, but she was able to testify that she was sitting in a hospital bed completely in a little thing around her leg. What is that thing called? Halo kind of thing on the leg and, and arms broken and ribs crushed and just laying there immobilized. And she was able to worship the Lord, not because she had something great to offer him, because he has already offered her something great. 
And see, friends, that's what it boils down. We don't put confidence in the flesh. Paul said, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. There's nothing good in our flesh, and so we don't have to go around having flesh contests. And that's what legalists do. That's what legalism does. Legalism says, show, show me your flesh, I'll show you my flesh, let's see who's got the best flesh. And then at the end, whoever wins the flesh contest is deemed the most spiritual. But flesh begets flesh. There's nothing good that can come from it. And so Paul says, we're the type of people who don't put any confidence in the flesh. So what's he talking about? Well, he's about to tell us. He's about to unload. Because this is where he throws away his resume. This is where he tosses out his resume, and he's encouraging us to do the same thing. Verses 4 through 6. Paul is about to testify to his former trusts. First of all, he gives us this hypothesis in verse number 4. Paul says, I myself, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, what is Paul doing here? Paul's saying this. Okay, hypothetical situation. All these people, these dogs, these evil workers, these, these people who are, are coming in to uh, advance circumcision and the Jewish law and all this stuff in addition to the gospel. If they want to get into a contest, they do not want to go up against me. I am Paul. And so he's actually entering into their foolishness for the sake of argument. So Paul's saying, oh, the big shots came into town. Okay. And they're boasting about their circumcision. Hmm, that's weird. Um, they're boasting about their allegiance to the Jewish law. Hmm, that's kind of odd. But since they're doing that, how about they let me into the contest? Because what Paul's about to reveal is his resume is bigger than their resume. His resume is going to completely shot block everything they were coming to the table. Now, Paul is not advocating trusting in these things. He's just playing their own game with them. So look at what he says. Go down into verse number five with me. He starts out with his pedigree and his position. These are things that Paul didn't even have anything to do with. This is just where he was born, the privilege he was born into. And so it says here, Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the Jewish law. I'm of the people of Israel. As a matter of fact, my tribe is the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew born from two Hebrews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And as to the law, I was a Pharisee. Now, let's just hunker down here for a minute. So remember, the people that are causing the trouble are the people who are seeking to add Jewish law to the gospel in order to validate somebody's Christianity. And Paul is going to set himself up as the premier example of what an Orthodox Jew should live like. And then at the end of it, he's going to say, and none of that stuff matters. So watch this. So he had Jewish privilege from the beginning, circumcised on the eighth day. That means he's a blood descendant of Abraham. Seven days after his birth, his parents circumcised him, and he was a, he was a true eight-dayer. So he, he, from the beginning of his days, he was in line with the Jewish law. So he had a racial pedigree as a Jew. He had a religious pedigree as a practicing Hebrew. He was a complete insider. He even mentions his tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. 
Now, if you're, if you're not up to date or, or never have learned Jewish history, the tribes were, were, were fragmented. The people of Israel were fragmented into different tribes, and 10 of the tribes were carried away into captivity, and two of the tribes, you had Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin was the only son of Jacob that was actually born within the boundaries of the promised land. It was from the tribe of Benjamin that the first Hebrew king, King Saul, came from. Paul was named after Saul. His original name was Saul. So he had pride. He had heritage. And the tribe of Benjamin was a faithful tribe. They stuck with Judah. They stuck with King David after, um, after Solomon, uh, the kingdom split. They, they stuck together. And so Paul had all of this fully devoted Hebrew pedigree. He would have spoken the language of the Jews and not Greek. He could read the Jewish scriptures in Hebrew, Aramaic, not, didn't have to read it in Greek. And so all of this stuff, Paul, Paul, by the way, it wasn't mentioned right here, but in Acts chapter 26, you find out that Paul was trained up in Jewish theology at the feet of the great teacher Gamaliel. So he even had the right education. So watch this. Paul's saying, I was born into the right family. I was born into the chosen race. I was born in practicing the law at eight days old when I was circumcised. My parents were both Jewish. I don't have any Gentile blood in my lineage. I am pedigreed and positioned as the cream of the crop. Now, once upon a time, we're going to find out that Paul took great pride in all of those things, all of those things that he didn't have anything to do with. The last thing mentioned there in verse number five was his choice. According to the law, the Jewish law, he was a Pharisee. That's a word you need to be familiar with. It still has applications today. But in Paul's day, a Pharisee was kind of like a, a sect or even a denomination within Judaism. They were the most conservative, they were well-trained in the Hebrew scriptures. They had to follow to the T over 600 commands. And it was their challenge to fulfill all of those commands from the Torah every single day of their life. And Paul said, yep, I lived that way. He never said he was perfect, but he's about to tell us he was blameless. And so Paul was a heavyweight. Matter of fact, his testimony later in the book of Acts was this, I was advancing well beyond all of my peers. In other words, when it came to the religious landscape at before Saul's conversion, he was the cream of the crop. He was like the five-star recruit. He was there when they killed the first Christian Stephen. Paul had the ability, Saul at that time, had the ability to hold the coats of those that threw the rocks and killed the very first Christian martyr. Saul was there saying, amen, amen, put that heretic Christian down, kill that blasphemer. And then when he was converted, which we'll talk about in just a moment, when he was converted, he was on his way to imprison more Christians. This is not an overstatement. Paul was a religious um, terrorist of the first century against the church. He was a religious tyrant and a blind, blindly motivated terrorist. He just wanted to kill the Christians. That's what he's going to talk about here. Matter of fact, look in verse number six. So beyond his pedigree and position, look at his tenacity and his discipline. He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, nobody could touch me. I was blameless. So Paul wasn't just one of those big brain theologians. Paul was a man of action. 
to his credit, he lived out what he believed. It was wrong, it was blind, it was anti-Jesus, but he didn't know it. He was doing it all in ignorance, but he was so zealous for God in his former days of Pharisaical Judaism. He believed the highest calling on his life as a Pharisee and as an Orthodox Hebrew was to rid the world of the followers of Jesus. And so with zeal, he woke up every day looking for opportunities. How do I either call for the death of these Christians or, or how do I at least imprison them? And all the while he was doing it, he was keeping the rules. As to the law, blameless. What that means, it's not just a generalization. What Paul is saying there is if anybody had dared to inspect his life, they wouldn't have been able to find one thing that he was doing outside of the law of God in the sense of the Jewish law. Uh, just, just go there with me. That's a guy who sees zero need for a savior. He doesn't see any sin. He's talking about how he used to be. He doesn't see anything wrong with himself. So what he's doing, remember who he's setting this up for, it's for these supposedly spiritual Hebrews, the Judaizers that are coming into the church and they're wanting to strut around about how orthodox they are and how holy they are and how, how aligned with God's heart through the law that they are. And now Paul's walking in the room. He says, which one of you guys is the, the guys mandating circumcision? I'd like to have a chat with you. Because if we're going to compare resumes, I brought mine with me. And he just is giving these kind of uh, uh, testimonies to how how rigid and committed and tenacious he was as a religious man. Now, this is where it gets amazing because now we get down into the last couple of verses. It's here that Paul renounces all these lesser loyalties. He renounces them. All this stuff on his resume, this is where he tosses it out. First of all, he found the greatest treasure. He's speaking about all those things. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. We're going to pause there. Paul is actually using in the Greek language, it's translated into English, what we're reading, the Greek language, he's using accounting terms here. And this is the picture he's giving us. He's saying, all of that stuff used to be in my assets column. What, what were those things? Just for a reminder, um, circumcised the eighth day. I was a Jew, tribe of Benjamin, born to Hebrew parents as a Hebrew. I was a Pharisee according to the law. Nobody was more zealous than me. I persecuted the church. Under the law, nobody could touch me. Nobody could bring any accusation against me. I towed the line. I kept the rules. I had the pedigree. I had the privilege. I had all of it. I was the consummate Jew of my day. And Paul said, but then I met Jesus, and everything that used to be in the asset column now became a deficit to me. Why? Because, I mean, who doesn't want to be moral? Who, who doesn't want to be zealous? Who doesn't want to know their Bible? I mean, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, Paul, I mean, this stuff isn't bad in and of itself. But Paul says, oh, no, Jeff, you are absolutely wrong. The reason why it was so bad is because it was all produced by my flesh and I trusted in it. There's the problem. It's not that moral behavior is bad. Moral behavior with the right motivation is good and necessary. 
We're not advocating, oh, it doesn't matter what we do. We're not talking about some kind of antinomian kind of, you know, case sarah, sarah, we can do whatever we want because Jesus' blood. That's not the attitude of a saved person either. What, what Paul is saying here is, no, the, the things in and of themselves were attached to goodness, but because I trusted in them, because I, I staked my eternity in who I was on the outward and my religion and my race and my, my, my morality and my education and all of these attainments, he said, they were all assets until I met Jesus. When I met Jesus, my mind was blown. Y'all remember when he met him in Acts chapter 9? He's on his way to a new city. He's frothing at the mouth because there's Christians up there that he's going to throw in jail. And so he's riding on either a donkey or a horse. He's heading that way. And Jesus just says, enough is enough with this guy. And so Jesus appears to Paul, Saul of Tarsus, on the Damascus Road in a blinding light. They said it was at noon, and the glory of Jesus shined on Saul in a way that was so bright, it, it was brighter than the noonday sun. It knocked Saul off his horse. It blinded him. And Saul's question to Jesus was, who are you? And Jesus said, it's me, Jesus the one you've been persecuting. Real quick here. I love that statement because Jesus always identifies with his people because Jesus was in glory. Jesus wasn't being personally persecuted by, by Saul, but Saul was persecuting Christians and Jesus said, yeah, you're messing with me when you mess with them. And, and so it was, it was in that moment where, where Saul's life changed. I don't want to underestimate this or understate it, Paul's entire life up to that point, in that instance, and he sat blind for three days, by the way. Um, Jesus sends a, a, a Christian over there to take him into a house, and the Bible says that Saul just sat in the house um, for three days. I think with a guy named Ananias, he just sat there for, for three days blind. He didn't eat or didn't drink, and for three days, he's just realizing everything my life was about was a waste everything he trusted in, everything about himself was eradicated in an instant of Jesus's glory appearing to him. Now, we might say, wow, I mean, Jesus was tough on him. No, Jesus was actually very merciful to him because he not only saved him and forgave him, he, he could have incinerated him and sent him to hell if he had wanted to. I mean, he could have, but he didn't do any of that. He saved him and then he commissioned him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he gave him a life purpose. But here's what's crazy. Paul's whole resume got wadded up and Paul had to throw it away because he trusted in those things. What needs to happen in all of our lives is we need to have repeated encounters with the glorious Savior. Um, I can tell you, you probably don't need a sermon more than you need an encounter at this point in your life. Now, I love sermons, I love Bible, I teach, I preach, I love all of that stuff. Matter of fact, I hope I continue to preach. Um, I'm not really good at anything else. But the reality is, is you've probably heard enough sermons and it, it, there just needs to be a, 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 a flip of the switch in your soul that brings life to all those sermons that we've heard. Encounter with the Lord. A lot of people prefer a sermon because a sermon's safe. A sermon leaves you pretty much in control. You can get up and walk out of here whenever you want. Uh, sermons touch the mind. They might stretch the heart. Occasionally, they, they bring light, and God uses those things. But I'm going to tell you, 
There's a difference between a sermon and what happened to Paul in Acts 9. What happened to Paul in Acts 9 was a sovereign ambush by a glorious king who said, enough is enough, your life's been going in the wrong direction. And so we, we ought to be thirsting and hungering for encounters with the glory of God because it's the glory that changes us, the presence that changes us. The sermons might equip us and the teachings and the doctrine and all that stuff, they, they, they have plenty of value to them, but it is encounter with God that transforms a life. And so Paul got to the point where he said, yeah, when I encountered Jesus, all the stuff in my assets column ended up becoming deficits. He said, I've counted everything as loss. How, how could he say that? He says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul said, after meeting Jesus and knowing him intimately, encounter, uh, growth, walking with Jesus, it's all wrapped up in that concept of knowing him. Paul says, the more I get to know him, the less I care about all this other stuff. I don't have time to go down this rabbit trail, but the reality is um, the best way to get delivered from sin is not through discipline. It's through falling in love with Jesus. It's, it's by becoming more acutely aware of his, how glorious he is because you won't want to step down to lesser temptations when you are just being enthralled with a surpassing glory of who he is. Now, my testimony was 10 years in addiction, in and out of rehab, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, Detox at Kennestone Hospital, all sorts of AA meetings, and I never got free. And then I met Jesus on a Thursday morning of August in 1994. I never got drunk again. I never did another drug. It was, it was gone. What happened? I found someone unspeakably, immeasurably better than any high that I had ever had, and he loved me. And he didn't condemn me, but he saved me. And when he transformed my heart, I realized I never want to go back to those old lovers. I don't want drugs. I don't want alcohol. I don't want that stuff anymore. Why? Because I love him. More importantly, he loves me. So Paul's talking about renouncing these lesser loyalties. And so he gains perspective on everything else. That's kind of what I just preached, verse 8. He says, for his sake, for Jesus' sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. It's a British word. Nobody says rubbish over here. <laughs> Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let me, let me give you a little insider footnote here. I probably wouldn't preach this on a Sunday morning just because, well, several reasons. But the word rubbish there in the Greek, it's intense. It's very indelicate. It is not a curse word, but it's one of those words we use when we know we can't use a curse word. It's like second level curse word. You know, there's some words that aren't quite curse words, but we still wouldn't say them in certain company. You know, I try not to use them at all. You know, I don't want to get as close to swearing as I can without doing it. But, but what Paul is using here is a, is a word, the best way I can tell you, it's, it's, it's what you see in a diaper. It's diaper contents. It's gross. And Paul says, all of those things that used to identify him, that used to make him feel great, that used to make him feel 
worthy of God and better than everybody else. Paul said, when I met Jesus, all those things were like a two-day-old diaper. The only thing you can do with something like that is throw it out and get as far away from it as you can. And that's what he thought of all those acts of the flesh that he used to trust in. And so in verse number nine, it's the last verse, hallelujah, four minutes and we're gone. He committed to slay his pride. And I'm gonna invite you into a season where you intentionally go to war with your own pride. And if you don't think you have any, you're the one who needs this word the most. He committed to slay his pride. He said, all that stuff was diaper contents. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He's, he's saying, I don't want to ever give in to that impulse to establish my own righteousness that comes to me through what I do. Friends, that's, listen, because we're given to extremes, we think, okay, well, if righteousness doesn't come through works of the law or morality, then I guess I'll just be immoral because none of it matters. No, it's all in the motivation. You can read other parts of Paul's writings, and he's very serious about how we live our lives, very serious about honoring Christ, very serious about repenting of sin and living a clean and moral life. But the motivation is what makes it holy or unholy. If I'm trying to act a certain way to get something from God or to justify myself before God, no matter how well I'm behaving, it's unholy. It's unholy. If the motivation is to say, look how spiritual I am. God, you're obligated to treat me with favor because of all this I'm doing. I am an impeccable Christian. That's pride. Now, we never say it that way. We would, we're, we're all too sophisticated in our sin to say it that way. But what we do is we, we get a haughty look in an arrogant place in our heart, and we look down on other people who don't rise to the level of where we are. And we judge them and we justify ourselves, and God looks at that and he says, that is filthy rags. That is Paul's diaper that he talked about. Too hard for you tonight? Nobody can kill your pride but you and God, and I promise you, you want to do it before he has to. You want to get to it quick. You want to put it to death because it's not that he gets mad at us or anything like that. He's just a good father. And he knows that pride will kill us. And so he'll kill the pride before the pride kills us. And so then in verse number nine, it comes to the end. He says, I, I just got to finish this. He moved his confidence from his old works to Jesus. He says, I don't want to have a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on you start with faith. How do you get into the kingdom? You enter in by faith. You trust in what Jesus Christ has done for you. You don't come and meet him halfway. You, you don't come and say, Lord, let me just, I'm gonna clean up my act. I'm gonna get into church. I'll get baptized if I need to. I'll just stop doing these things and then me and you will, you do your half, I'll do my half. You can't do your half. He, he's too wise to leave that up to you. He says, how about you just acknowledge you've got nothing to bring? How about you just say it? How about you confess that you're helpless without me? How about you just throw all of your junk on me? I'll take it because I love you. And if you'll put your trust in me and you'll confess me as the Lord of your life 
and you'll welcome me to be the savior of your soul, I will do that. And I tell you what, I'll start changing you. I'll start changing you. You're going to cooperate. You're going to learn. We're going to, we're going to walk through this. You're going, to, you're going to learn how to obey. You're going to learn how to follow. You're going to learn how to respond. I'm going to walk with you from this point through the end of your days all the way into eternity. But I'm going to tell you something. You can never think that you're doing it on your own. Because the second you start thinking you're doing it on your own, you enter into this legislation, this legalism, this law shackle to where on your good days, you're full of pride because you're taking care of business. And on your bad days, you're cowering in a corner somewhere because you're waiting for God to strike you down because you blew it. That's not the way he wants us to live. He doesn't want us to live in the extreme of pride on our good days and cowering in fear on our bad days. He wants us to live in faith that on the days where we know we've blown it, we don't run and hide. We lift up hands and we say, Lord, I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, you paid it all. I have sinned. Forgive me of my sin. I turn from it. I repent of it, Lord. Help me never to do those things again. Please forgive me. And he says, you are forgiven. I am faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's begin anew. That's the way he operates. And, and, and there's, there's just no room for us saying, Lord, I don't need your blood today because I took care of today. I, I did good today. I don't know if you noticed up there, but I really rocked it today. I didn't break any commandments. I was very holy. I, I, I was nice to people. And you can take the day off. I know we never say it that way, but that's the way pride thinks. And so there's just something about faith that says, on my good days, I really need him. On my bad days, I really need him. And I don't need him any less on my good days than I do on my bad day. Lord, it's just all about you, and I need you, and I thank you that you've given yourself to me. I thank you that I don't have to present you my resume. Amen? All right, let's stand up. We're going to be dismissed. You're so good and so patient and so kind. You're just really, really good to us, Lord. Lord, help us to put to death our pride. Help us to walk in faith. Help us to not overcomplicate what you died to make uncomplicated. Help us to have encounter with you. I pray that through any means of your choosing, Lord, we would encounter you. Show us whatever amount of your glory you can reveal to us, whatever you can entrust us with. We want to experience you. Make our sermons 3D. Turn our podcast into full contact faith. And Lord, help us never again to measure ourselves by other people or measure ourselves by our success ratio. Just help us to know, Lord, that you measured us in the beginning. You knew we were lacking and you met us there right in the midst of our lack with everything we needed. You said it was finished on the cross. That's where we rest today. In Jesus' name, amen.